And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's the tired, it's the weary, it's the jet-lagged, it's the return from Luncon 3, Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Stran on the Coot Street Podcast! And we're home, we're back in the Motel 6, we're not recording from London, we're not oh, recording f- hotels, we're not recording from... Actually, a really wonderful group of people uh, at our live podcast. Absolutely. I mean, I, I did a little bit of a head count, and there's about 200 people there, Gary. Uh huh. Which was very gratifying, uh, and it was wonderful to see, you know, the diversity of the audience. It was, you know, fantastic to have the the special guests to have Kim Stanley mm-hmm. Robinson, Robert Silverberg, and Joe Walton join us. And, you know, obviously special thanks to the people at Luncon 3 for helping with recording the podcast, which will go out next weekend. So if you weren't there, if you weren't one of the lucky 200, well then, just wait, because it did come out very, very well. But it was also, I have to say, the best Worldcon I have ever attended. I've heard that from a number of people, and I I think I think you're right. I think that's... It, it certainly was... Intelligent programming. It had a very well laid out dealer's room. Uh, the space was daunting. Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody measured that the space was 900 kilometers long. <laughs> uh, so it never felt crowded. World cons that take place in hotels, even in hotels with attached convention centers, tend to have bottlenecks. There were no bottlenecks there. On the other hand, it just felt enormous and physically enormous. Um, I, I guess it did. It did feel like Worldcon was tucked into a corner of this enormous space, you know. And I can remember one particularly unpleasant or ill-fated feeling morning when I was in the dealer's room and I wanted to buy a copy of Nina Allen's new book, The Race, which came out mm-hmm. at the convention. And I realized I had no cash and I needed to go to an ATM. And I realized that the ATM was at the other end of the convention center. Mm-hmm. And it was a bit of a marathon to schlep all the way there and back, Gary. But, you know, sorry, you were at least at the end of the convention. Your hotel was near the conference end of the convention. This is going to mean nothing to people who weren't. there. No, let's not go too far into that because it's beside the point. The main point is, isn't the layout of the convention. It's this. Mm -hmm. This is why I think it's the best convention I've ever attended. Or Worldcon I've ever attended. Uh, I didn't hear anybody complain about the organization. I didn't hear anybody complain about the programming. And the people I know whine about this stuff if it's going off. Uh, the, the, con- the convention programming that I attended was intelligent, well thought out, and well run. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody was complimentary about the stuff they attended. My daughter, Sophie, of this podcast, mm-hmm. uh, had a very successful appearance at her first ever convention program item. And so she was taken with it. And with 10,000 pe- well, 10, paid memberships, and I think about 8,000 people on the ground, yes, it was incredibly diverse. You know, there were young people, there were families with children, there were um, people from all around the world. I think one of the most fresh, you know, sort of lovely things that had happened to me, and to, to you I think as well, were all of the people from Europe who came up to us and Including talked about the podcast. Uh, including that charming group of young people whose names I don't remember who were doing a podcast modeled on ours in somewhere in Eastern Europe. I totally yes. forgot about them. Uh, but the, the, I think you're right about the diversity, European, uh, uh, Asian, South Asian. Uh, it was probably the most diverse 
Worldcon I've been to in that sense. I did hear, and I, I have really relatively little sympathy for this, but there are a couple of discussion boards I'm on where, where senior, let's be honest, where old white men were saying, I'm not, I used to be a star at these conventions, and now I'm not even on the program. Um, well, to some extent, that's a generational change, and this may be the first world kind I've been to that seems to recognize, and that we should talk about this in a minute, the Hugo Ballad seemed to recognize this kind of cultural and international diversity that's now a central part of the field. It doesn't, see, it doesn't, feel, it doesn't feel innovative anymore. It feels like it's part of the fabric of what we do. Well, and It's never felt that way. Well, there's a couple issues there. I mean, I, I can sympathize with anybody who feels like their clubhouse is changing when they don't want it to change, right? I really, really can. However, I can't help but feel that this clubhouse is enriched by a broader diversity of people being involved. I really feel that way. I know my experience was enriched by it, and I think most others was. I don't think anybody has a right to be on programming. You know, I, I, again, I can empathize with the feeling that you used to be important, and maybe you're not as important anymore, but that doesn't mean you have the right to you know, to, to be on program or, or to be lauded, be more interesting, stay relevant, you know, that's what you do. Absolutely, and, I, and, and, and embrace the changes. I think my frustration with this, which is no different from my frustration with any other Worldcon, yeah. is realizing either on the last day or even after I've left, of the 20 or 30 people that I didn't get to see that I knew were there, uh, Brian Aldis showed up. Uh, yeah. Several people saw him, but I didn't, and he's an old friend. I would love to have said hello to him. Um, and I just didn't happen to be in the same place at the same time. And with a with an, a crowd that large, it's very difficult to make plans on the fly. You pretty much either have to arrange that sort of thing ahead of time. A lot of the um, people that we're talking about, some of the diverse people from uh, from Eastern Europe, from Asia, from um, even Latin America, um, that I later found out were there. I didn't get a chance to meet people I've always wanted to meet. That's, But that's not a frustration that has to do with this, this Worldcon. That's a frustration that has to do with any convention that has more than 5,000 members. Yeah, um, yeah so that's true. So, it's, so I tend to agree. I thought the programming uh, was well thought out, was intelligent. The, the panelists seemed to be well prepared and, more importantly, well chosen for the panels that they were on. One of the pro problems that I have with conventions, and probably particularly with Worldcons, uh, is the randomness of panels. Uh, one of the things that can destroy a convention is a sense that everybody has to be dumped on a panel, whether they like it or not, whether they know anything about yeah. it. Um, and it's a it's a kind of democratization gone wild. We're going to put people on a panel, and, and which, which results in these endless panels that begin with all the panelists saying, I don't know why I'm on this panel. There wasn't I very much of that at this at all, no. It was very coherent and well thought out. Yeah, uh, and the couple of panels I was on, the couple of panels I went to, um, even the ones that looked like they could turn into uh, jokey, wisecracking, uh, let's see who can get the biggest laugh from the audience panels, that didn't happen at all. There were, as always, and this happens inevitably at any convention, there were people who were going... Hold, Gary, sir. Why have you been as broken? I'll come and look at it after the podcast. Is my room yet? No. I'll look at it when I come after the podcast. Sorry, Gary. Yep. always... Yeah, I was going to say there's always, um, it's, it's in the nature of conventions, there's always going to be a panel in which it, which maybe one of the panelists feels that their job is to um, make wisecracks, mug for the audience, and get a laugh. 
Yeah. Uh, I saw less of that than in most places. Uh, I saw I saw less of the fan baiting kind of panel behavior that I've seen in the past, and I find very annoying. Uh, there's nothing wrong with having humor injected into a panel, but when when you have, I'm, I'm thinking of one panel I was on in particular, and I'm I'm not using that to make a critique of this particular convention. But there was one panelist who just, whenever a serious point was being made, would undercut it with a laugh line, and it just was really. Now I have that's my cat who is yeah. really under that one. But anyway, the, uh, the, my point generally was that you you can put on a very large convention, have the panels well selected, have the topics intelligent, have a dealer's room which is clearly laid out, easy to navigate, and um, have a lot of breakout spaces. There was no sense of being congested anywhere. Uh, so it, 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 was, it was very, very pleasant. It was not by any stretch of the imagination an intimate convention, however. Oh, oh no, it wasn't. But uh, um, whilst I, I concur completely everything about the organization and the coherence of it, it felt like a vital convention. You know what I mean mm-hmm. like it, like it's filled with energy. I've, I've been to a couple of world cons, and I don't want to name names particularly where they felt tapped out and kind of weary and a bit dull. You know, I, I've mm-hmm. been I've been bored at a couple of world cons. I was never bored at this. Um, it did have the downside that you could never find anybody you wanted to talk to, but it had the upside mm-hmm. that you could always find somebody who you're happy to talk to. Right. Exactly. Which was a great uh, thing. One of, the, one of the advantages of that long concourse is that you could pretty much plant yourself in it and have conversations with people that you would make no plans to have conversations with, but you're glad to see. Yeah. Um, I don't first know if, night, I had no plans yeah. for dinner, and we ended up, I ended up having a very pleasant dinner with our uh, friends Paul Kincaid and Maureen Kincaid-Speller, mm-hmm. who I had not known I was going to see at all. It was a delightful way to start. I would say that, you know, I don't know if you've read the piece that Jonathan Macklemont of this parish wrote mm. about Worldcon's post the Worldcon no, and no. the possibly disturbing looking from a distance trend for Worldcon's to try and prevent there being too many overseas Worldcon's in the coming years. Mm-hmm. You know, because after all, after all, we're going to Spokane and, well, Worldcon's going to Spokane and Washington, and then it's off to Kansas City. And I understand that for the 2017 race, they've just had an announcement from Washington, D.C. as well, which is the year that I think Helsinki's up, which a lot of people are hoping will will win. And I I think what this convention has shown, to me at least, is to have the biggest Worldcon of all time, and they're quibbling about this, but the biggest Worldcon of of all time, the most diverse Worldcon I've ever heard of, and certainly the most diverse Worldcon I've ever seen, and one of the most vital and energetic Worldcons, to take the lesson away from that, that you don't want to do it again and you want to sort of hide at home seems a pretty poor way of reacting to what was a very exciting convention. I'm not sure it's a reaction to the convention um, uh, so much as a reaction to um, the expense of the convention. My sense from American fans that I know, and, this, and I don't know a lot, and the ones I know s- tend to be here in Chicago, is that... Most of them were very excited about going to London, but going to London involves saving up for a year, involves an, an enormous expense, and to do that every year would be impractical. Now, re- I realize that's complete American children. And do I was saying, so, so saying this to me, it's like you're looking at, 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 me, at me like, or, or they're saying it to, like, I should feel some sympathy for this, when this is what I do every year, Gary. 
well, not only are you being asked to do this every year, everybody from England, everybody from Germany, from Finland, from South America. So, so it's, it's, a, it's an extremely self-centered, narrow-minded American attitude. But it's an attitude which probably is historically buried in Worldconism. Um, there were debates back in the forties, back, back in the yeah, back in the forties and fifties about having Worldcons in on the West Coast or in Chicago because the New York fans didn't buy the train ticket. Sure, I think we're seeing a version of that right now. And, uh, and look, I, I don't, don't expect to see ten thousand people show up to Helsinki if it wins. I don't expect to see. 10,000 people show up to Spokane or Kansas City. I, I'll tell um, you now, I would be surprised if they top five. Yeah, I would be too. I mean, if you look at the Worldcon uh, attendance over the years, which you can see online, uh, mm. it's very much, um, you know, it was Worldcon attendance has been on decline for some years, and this year it turned around dramatically. You know, you went from a, I think it was about 4,000 or, or so for the pre, three preceding years. And now suddenly here you have this huge convention. I mean, what, what, what's it got? 4,300 for Lone Star, 47 for ShyCon, 4,100 for Renovation, 2,000 mm. for AussieCon, 4,000 for Anticipation, 3,800 for Denvention. So that's, that's the last six years or seven years or something. Mm. And then suddenly you get 8,000 people with 10,000, well, in fact, nearly 11,000 paid memberships mm -hmm. you know so no it clearly is uh but but you know this is a world con which as we know has been years in the making it's not some oh, people yeah. who put together bed and uh and and the the team that um uh, the people i know on the team that were involved including some of our friends neil uh the, the exhibit space our friend farrow was uh in, involved with these were people who were experienced and sincere and wanted to do something um, I guess equitable and fair and representative, and, and not all world cons have had that attitude. No, um, but, but I, it, it really is. Well, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just I would have thought the lesson to be learnt here, though, is that from Luncon three to my way of thinking, is that there are people who want to come to a big, exciting, diverse convention. Mm -hmm. That's the answer. I mean, that, that that's what I, I look at, and that's what I see. When I see eight thousand people on the ground and 11,000 people paying memberships, and I know there are distort, little distorting factors and whatever else, but basically, yeah. then that's damn exciting. You know? Well, it's, does it say anything healthy about the state of the field? Does it mean that the field is that vital and that energetic? Does, does what happens at a convention, even a Worldcon, really reflect anything about the health of the field of science fiction? I think it shows that it can interesting point but i need to have that explained okay i don't think that the attendance at worldcon typically reflects much more than a dwindling audience dwindling aging aging audience now in mm -hmm. fairness and in accuracy i have not looked at the demographics of worldcon so this is a, 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 an assumption and if somebody mm -hmm. out there if if cheryl or or uh, anybody else wants to provide corrected information i'd love to know that the audience wasn't actually aging but the impression i get is that the Worldcon audience is aging and the impression i get from being on the ground in london was that that was reversed somewhat in london and also i got the impression that much as some of the larger conventions you know science fiction conventions that we don't talk about as Worldcons. i mean when you look at you know, dragon con with its twenty-eight thousand people and so on these large conventions there is there is an interest if you're willing to be diverse and inclusive 
And I don't think, on, like, say, World Fantasy, I don't think it changes the basic charter of Worldcon to be inclusive in that way. And I think people will no, react. I, I think people want this, want a vital, big, large international science fiction convention to go to, and Worldcon can be it if it chooses to. I be. think part of the difference I, I sensed talking to people, just talking to random people during the convention, um, friends and people I'd met for the first time, is that there is a historical sense of Worldcon attendees wanting to go and and and, and, and hero worship. Go go in the, you know the years when you could. Go to the Worldcon because that's where you could see Isaac Asimov or Robert Heinlein or or, or, or Joel Haldeman a few years later. I think now the sense is it's no longer a place to go to see your heroes. It's a place to go to see the new writers that are exciting that you don't know anything about. I met any number of people uh, that uh, who whose whose fiction is exciting, and I was just curious to see who they were. So I think the hero worship aspect of Worldcon has diminished. Now, that obviously does not include people like George R.R. R. Martin, uh, because he's going to have that crowd no matter where he goes. But I do think that there were a lot of people there because they wanted to meet some of the newer, younger writers. They wanted to meet people that they, uh, that whose, whose fiction they found exciting, but who had not been um, historically icons of the field, or at least yeah. not yet icons of the field. Um, we, you and I, I think, both spent a fair amount of time talking to Lavi Tidar, who I'd, I'd talked to before, but he has really interesting perspectives, um, both Israeli and, 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 and British perspectives on science fiction, which is, only, and, and his involvement in World SF, it seems to me, is emblematic of what Worldcon eventually became. It begins yeah. to reflect World SF in a way that no other, I think I'm fair in saying this, in a way that no other Worldcon really has reflected before. True. It was what about a, the award film? Well, before you do that, I'm just to point out a weird thing I just noticed, and it, it's got to be, it's it can only be explained to my way of thinking by him turning it down. William Gibson's never been a Worldcon guest of honor. Really? That's an interesting my, statistic. Yeah. Anyway, okay. What do I think of the awards? Goodness gracious me, yeah. girls and boys, that's an interesting question. First of all, I guess in all. You know, good fellowship. We need to send out some congratulations. We do. Our congratulations to Patrick Hester and the SF Signal team for winning in mm. the best fan cast category. Well done and well deserved. Uh, also, my congratulations <laughs> to my good friend Ellen Datlow, who took out the best editor short form, which we, which I was up for as well. I would, you know, I. It's always lovely to win, but if I have to lose to someone, I'm delighted to lose to Ellen because she is a really top-notch editor at the top of her form, so that was, was good. Uh, there were some little side blows, which we'll maybe get to, but overall, I kind of thought that it was a balanced response to all of the turmoil that led up to the world fantasy, the, 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 the Hugos. You know, if you look at them, none of, the, none of the controversies actually made it to the final results. No, they, they just disappeared by the time of the second or third round of voting. Um... For people who haven't attended a Worldcon, and I don't blame you if you haven't, um, the most the, the, the moment everybody waits for is after the Hugo ceremony. <laughs> when well, hang on. Let's, let's be fair. Enough. Everybody who's an insider who's paying far too much attention to the details, okay, everybody a, else is kicked off to party parties and have forgotten about it. Yeah, people people are off getting drunk, and there there are a bunch <laughs> of us who are grabbing these sheaves of paper. 
explaining how the votes worked, which I still don't understand to this day, but also explaining how the nominations work. And one of the things that comes up again and again in these things uh, is the disparity between the nominations and the final votes. Yes, that's true. That's absolutely true. Uh, it's because different, just a different group who, who nominate from the group who vote. Or, or at the very mm-hmm. least, if everybody who nominates also votes, there's an enormous extra number of people who vote. Right. And if you look at it, I think, I don't know how many, what the maximum number of nominating vote ballots this year was, but I know that, the, that they received more, what 50% more votes than ever before in the history of the Hugos, topping 3,000 votes received. Yeah, something like that. Which is it pretty was, remarkable. Uh, 3,137. Yeah. And as the administrators said at the pre-Hugo party, more of which later probably, um, Mm. there was um, anybody who lost probably received more votes than anybody who'd won before in the history of uh, the Hugos. Um, That's hard for me to parse. I don't understand that at all. It was very clear that uh, getting on the ballot um, required... Anywhere, sometimes as few as 50 or 60 yeah. nominations. Um, but then you're absolutely right. You've got 50 or 60 people deciding who's going to be on the ballot. Uh, and then you've got 3,000 people uh, responding to that ballot. Yes. So to some extent, it's, it's I don't know, in, in, in politics, in American politics, it would be similar to the primary system where almost nobody votes, really. Yeah. But then once you're given a ballot, uh, once people are given a ballot, they're willing to choose. Uh, yeah. And the choices, the, the, the argument that I've heard against this system, uh, and I can't think of a better system offhand, is that the people who are most knowledgeable about the field are the ones who are going to nominate. Yeah. The people who are somewhat knowledgeable about the field will wait until they see the nominations and then vote for names that they recognize. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not, but it, uh, it, it's the same thing happens a little bit with the um, with the Locus Awards, mm. where the, you know, the the... the, the Finalists that we that, that the the locus uh, nominated nominations show up with are not necessarily the same as the winners in the end. Not that this is a bad system. No. Um, I, I think you're right. I think that one of the things that I heard from a number of people this year is that there were attempts to game the system. There were two distinct and concerted events to to generate Hugo awards, yes. and they both failed. They did. I mean, I mean, in their best light, they were attempts to promote a particular group of nominees or or nominee. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about the Wheel of Time and the you know the conservative so-called sad puppy group of nominees, and none of them got up. Uh, I have to say, I'm disappointed in the way that they got onto the ballot because I think that they changed the results. I think that other works, which personally I consider more worthy, might have <laughs> made it, but this is what happens. But the final mm. results were good. I mean, I have to say, if you look at it, what six, there's nearly 1,600 nominating ballots for Best Novel, and Ancillary Justice by mm. Anne Leckie won handily. I think it's a very worthy result. I was interested yeah. to see that, and I wouldn't add any much com- comment much beyond this, I was interested to see that Neil Gaiman withdrew The Ocean at the End of the Lane for, yeah, for, for consideration. It's my mm-hmm. own feeling with no supported view that had it been on the ballot probably the result would have been different. But, um, nonetheless, I guess, Ancillary Justice is a very yeah. fine winner. You know, it's a fine winner. It's, it's, it's a and and, look, and in think, years to come, when, when you look back on the list of Hugo winners, 
you're, no one is going to say why is it there, and nobody's mm. going to remember pretty much most of the others that were there in the category, apart from Charlie Stross's book, which is a, which is a good one. The complaint I heard from a number of people is that because of the quirks in the nominating process this year, there was not a solid slate of nominees in that category. In other words, there were other novels that essentially did get bumped out because of uh, the various machinations. Mm. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think I think the Anne Leckie winner is a popular winner. It's one that, and we should we should encourage people to go back and listen to our podcast with Anne Leckie. Yes, absolutely. I thought it was very impressive in the way she talked about the book and its relationship to science fiction and science fantasy. Yeah. But there were other books. Uh, there were other books that might have made the final ballot um, that didn't because of this. But I think you're right. Ten years from now, nobody's going to worry about who was nominated this year. No, not at all. Uh, it's only you know, people going back and studying it. Uh, Charlie Stross took home best novella for Equoid, which was published on Tor.com. One thing that made me happy about this, it wasn't my favorite of the novellas, though I enjoyed it. Um, it I, I was happy to see a British nominee take home a Hugo. I had hoped to see some of the very fine British science fiction and fantasy writers out there, like Chris Priest, like Mike Harrison, like uh, Paul McCauley, like Nina Allen, uh, end up on the ballot, and they didn't. So it's good to see, see a Brit actually take home a... Hugo at their home convention. That's true, and it struck me on the balance, uh, all the way through the balance, that there were fewer uh, British writers than I would have expected to see. Uh, yeah. Partly because there are so many writers. When we talk, we've talked about uh, this on the podcast, sometimes with the authors involved, um, major British authors um, doing major work, which, which doesn't get published in the States. Um, and therefore, the British voters become an important factor in that. And they didn't seem to be that much of a factor. No. Uh, not it was not as Anglo-centric a convention as it could have been, which is a good thing in one sense, and it's not uh, it's not a nationalistic showpiece for British science fiction writers. But in a weird way, I wish it had been a little yeah. bit more. Yes, I would like to say, well, not the least because I genuinely think some of those British writers who weren't on this ballot have written some of the great, the best work of the year, you mm -hmm. know, and, and would have been extremely worthy nominees. Uh, so, you know, but that's our preferences. Best novelette went to Mary Robinette Cowell for the last, uh, uh, the Lady Astronaut of Mars, mm. uh, which was published on her website and in Gardner Dozois' audio anthology ripoff. And it was a very popular win. There'd been some controversy about eligibility in previous years, so it was nice to see that settled. Not again, not my mm. favorite story in the ballot, but a very popular one, and you can see why. And I don't think anyone will look back and wonder at that. And with that torturing everybody by going through the whole thing we might just cherry pick lovely to see john chu win for the, the water that falls on you from nowhere from tor.com for best short story um mm. gave a very heartfelt and wonderful speech i thought at, at the hugos for the and which you can see on us stream i think it is if you want to go back yeah. and look at the hugos but gave a very heartfelt speech um drama played out the way you thought it would Congratulations yeah. to Cameron Hurley for picking up a couple of Hugos, one for Best Related Work, one for uh, Best Fan Writer, I think it was. Any others you want to comment on, particularly young Gary? I never have much interest in things like dramatic presentation, long form or short form, uh, partly because I th th that seems to me to be a separate sort of voting altogether. 
Uh, there, there is one thing I, I would mention about it actually just quickly in retrospect my favorite nominee for the Hugos was the Five-ish Doctors reboot uh-huh. and the Five-ish Doctors reboot is my favorite nominee for a very simple reason that you will understand Gary yes? it was directed by Peter Davidson who was a former uh. Doctor Who and at the pre-Hugo party which is a wonderful celebration that happens every year yep. where nominees and their guests gather to celebrate their, their nominated, nominee status, status. Unexpectedly, Mr. Davidson showed up with his, his daughter and son-in-law. Mm-hmm. And his son-in-law is, of course, David Tennant. And David, who is, who is of course, the 10th the Doctor? The 10th Doctor, arguably the most popular Doctor in the last 20 years or so. And my daughter's hero. She was gobsmacked to have a chance to meet him. So that was a huge highlight of the event. And well, I can't argue with that. No. So, um, so all in all, I think it proved to be what everybody thought was going to be a disastrous, controversial Hugos turned out to be good Hugos. No, I think it did. And I think that the, uh, the lessons to be learned from this is that the Hugos are... Um, they're certainly not incorruptible. No, 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 well, no. But, but, but then but it balanced the out. They're, ba- they're balanced out. Uh, we can argue two ways. One is that uh, you can make the argument, as I implied earlier, that those who nominate awards are likely to be more sure. knowledgeable than those who vote on the final ballot. Yes. On the other hand, you can say that's balanced out by the fact that those who game the nominations ballot are going to be outvoted on the final ballot. Yes, yeah. So it, it, it works both ways. It, it does it, work both it, ways. It keeps, it keeps elitists from us like, like having <laughs> too much influence. But it keeps... Well, that's, it keeps the lunatic fringe from having too much influence at the same time. <laughs> well, I mean, the whole uh, preferential voting system that, that is used for the Hugos, which really isn't that confusing when you look at it, is based upon getting, I guess, the average most popular. That's what it's about. I suppose so. And that will flatten out any real sw- odd swings on the thing. Because of the sheer volume of stuff being... Uh, nominated these days there are oddities out there I think most people tend to agree when I talk to them that the one rule that needs actually needs revision and everybody's Mm. always talking about reforming the Hugos and changing the Hugos and mostly it's just not worth paying attention to but the rule that needs to be revised now is the 5% rule explain the 5% I shall there is a rule that says that if a work attracts fewer than less than 5% of of the nominations in a category, then it shall not appear on the on the ballot. So, for example, mm. if a, if there are, if there are a hundred votes cast, and you receive fewer than five votes, you can't be on the final ballot. What this has meant, in effect, particularly in the short story category over the last couple of years, is fewer than five ca- uh, works appear on the final ballot because there are so many short stories published these days, and there's just a mm-hmm burgeoning explosion i mean there's a new markets being announced all the time it seems to me that it's very difficult for any work to attract single work to attract a common enough readership to get that five percent and so i think it needs to be revised and reconsidered there are other rules which people felt were controversial the other big one this year was the 25 percent rule well no there are two others the 25 percent rule which didn't come into play but nearly did and actually i want to talk about that because that's fun the 25... I don't understand any of these things. Okay, well, do you, do you I, I, understand the 5% rule now? I do understand the 5% okay. rule. Okay, the 25% rule says this. 
mm-hmm. look at the category that had the most number of votes cast or ba- ballots ca- cast. Uh-huh. So in this case, the best novel. It uh-huh. had 1,595 ballots cast. If your category gets less than 25% of that number, so whatever that might be, 300 and something or whatever, right? If it gets less than that, then it doesn't get presented. Does that make sense? Okay. Are you with me? I think so. So, if we were to look at it in the case again, so, so 1595 votes, if you get, uh, times point, if you would have gotten yeah, less than 300 and odd votes, then you, so your award doesn't get presented, which would make you pretty unhappy, right? Actually, it's nearly 400. You- now, what's fascinating and, you know, sort of, a couple of categories skated on this by the skin of their teeth. The cutoff was 399, Gary. Best semi-prosine was nearly not present. In fact, this doesn't make sense. I've got the numbers wrong. I don't understand it. Okay, because I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm losing. What, what, what I'm getting now? Let's say Cheryl. 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 If Cheryl Morgan is listening to this podcast, please. We need to just get an explanation again. But what it comes down to is, okay, anyways, let me, that let me, let me back. We are. We are really boring people out there. Yeah, okay, okay. Can I just tell you one thing, though? And this is this is not boring to me. I love this one. In our category, mm. best fan cast, which we don't want with a naked, burning passion, if you go for that one at all. Um, oh. Not even a little naked, burning passion. Uh, there were X number of votes cast. And it nearly wasn't presented, my understanding. And Apparently, the number one vote for the best fan cast actually was no award. And that's because there is a move to get rid of the category and people are just trying to vote it out of existence. The actual oh. impact of those votes, the no award votes, which didn't preference anything else, was to give the category enough votes to be presented. So without the desire to have the category not presented, it wouldn't have been. <laughs> that, I think, is what confuses voters and what confused me as a voter because the issue came up a lot in discussions of how yeah. to how to structure your ballot? Yes, is the use of no award as a political tool? Yes. Now I don't know about that. All I know is that there was a whole bunch of ballots apparently that, that voted no award and nothing else. Uh-huh. They just didn't want it. They wanted there to be no fan cast category presented. Period. And hey, well, fair enough. Whatever rocks your boat. But the, the uh-huh. but the impact of those votes actually was to give the category enough votes to be presented. Now, you just said that we are boring people witless, and I think you're right. I think we've wandered way too far into this ter- territory as our, as our podcast sort of winds along. Uh, and it may, let's put it down to not having done one like this for a little while. So we should probably move to something more interesting. I mean, congratulations to all the hero winners. Special thank you to everybody at LunCon3 for being so fantastic to us. Extra special thanks to all of the listeners uh, and readers who came up to us and talked to us about the podcast, about our work. Uh, it really did mean a great deal. Uh, I think we'd like to try to do something to encourage more sort of two-way communication with our listeners in future, if we can, more comments and stuff. So we'll see what we can do about that. But for the most part, just sort of, it was a great experience and we're really, really happy we got to do it. And so thank you. And for those of you who are listeners to the podcast that I did not get to meet at all, I regret that. I was hoping we could say hello to some of our loyal friends. And if it did, by and large, Again, the size of the convention worked against us. Well, possibly one thing we could have done and should have done and may do it some year in the future is actually have a, a meetup at a convention. And actually sort mm. of say we'll be... You know, it's like, it's possible, Gary. Uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. It's possible we may both be at World Fantasy in Washington. 
and maybe That's possible. It's possible. It's not likely it's possible. Uh, and maybe what we'll do is just announce a time we're going to be in the bar and encourage people to come hang out. Mm-hmm. That would be great. But anyway, it was brilliant. What else we got to talk about, Gary, in the science fictional world well, of 2014, well, mere days well, after WorldCon? Just, just as a kind of footnote to the whole conversation, in, in 2024, 10 years from now, uh, somebody, let's say a Joe Walton, decides to go back and look at the Hugo nominees and Hugo winners from this year. Is this year going to hold up well? Is this a good No, they're going to look at it and go, what the f- happened? They're going to understand the winners and be very happy. They're going to look at the ballot and just go, I don't understand what happened there. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a couple of categories that's not true. There's a couple of characters that are really terrific, but I think across the slate, they're just going to look and go, I've got no idea what happened there. I suspect you're right. Uh, <laughs> but by and large, that's true of the nominees. When you look at the winners, it's, to be honest, I don't think it's um, particularly, um, it's not particularly undistinguished and not particularly distinguished. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's Whether they're classic works, I don't know if they're, I mean, we don't know, um, uh, it's 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 too early to see how ancillary justice is going to hold up. Yes. I I liked it. Uh, I think there's more to come in this. So one of the problems I have in reading a lot of books these days is not knowing how much of a completed work you've read when you've read a novel. Yeah. So you knowing that ancillary justice is part of a trilogy kind of thing. Exactly. Um, it, yeah. I think this is. It, I will be curious to get to the end of the ancillary trio. And yeah. see how it stands as, as a work. Some things, I mean, I've said this before, some things that you think at the time are going to be major works through time don't hold up. And some do. Some surprise you. I mean, you know, I was surprised that uh, Accelerando by Charles Stross didn't prove to be more of a landmark book than it had been. It probably wasn't because it had already been a landmark book, uh, set of stories. And so the influence had already been ta- had, but I was surprised. I think it. I, I think it's become a classic of a, of a, of a, of a sense, uh, but it is a it is a novel in stories, so to speak. So, so you're right. The uh, the impact of the sequence of stories probably outweighed the impact of uh, drawing them together. On the other hand, I can think of something like Gene Wolfe's Shadow of the Torture, which had a dramatic impact, even though there were essentially eleven more novels to come before that whole yeah. enormous novel was completed. So so that was an example of a novel which is the beginning of a sequence having a very dramatic impact when it came out yes um, that's true i think paul mccauley's um he, he, the quiet war which that's another similar example there were a series of stories uh that more or less provided the basis of the first novel and he's done like what three quiet war novels four all up and okay four all up but the the first one was the one that made the impact yep Absolutely. Are you asking, are there ones which have, you know, sort of subsequent books in a set that have made more impact than the first one? Well, one of the reasons I'm getting at this is because of the whole Wheel of Time thing, which I think was a bogus argument. But I think there is to be an argument to be made that a work which is completed in three or four volumes may or may not be judged by the completed volume or may be judged by the first volume historically or maybe judged by three volumes. I can think of examples um, of what I thought were very good trilogies that went on for a, a volume longer than they should have. Yeah. Uh, I, 
uh, one was actually one one was Paul Park's Princess of Romania novel. Terrific trilogy went on a little bit longer uh, than it needed to. Uh, so completing a series in the sense that this is what made me think about this was the Wheel of Time thing. Completing a series that goes on for 10, 12, 20 volumes um, does raise the question of when that series, what point in that sequence has the series made its impact? Yeah. And at what point does it simply become a reenactment of um, a popular concept? I don't know. I mean, I, th I think it varies. I think it varies from one series to uh, the other. Well, it's true. It, do... it depends on the depth of imagination. It depends <laughs> on the original planning that the author had. Quite uh, quite often when series um, continue or, or narratives continue, you've got to look at the why, because maybe there isn't story or substance there. They do work out sometimes. Sometimes you're better with a vague series, if you like, you're like a, rather than a really specific volume one, volume two, volume three kind of a thing. Uh but yeah, I mean, that series work out. I don't have much to say about this. I don't know. I, it, it, it's, I don't know if there is a lot to say about it. I mean, uh, I, I, I do think it's, it became a kind of franchise idea. It's always been there. I mean, when, when Jack Vance was writing the Dying Earth stories, yeah. there wasn't a point at which you could say the Dying Earth is done. Um, no, I mean, uh, and I, I guess some of that... It does come down to the affection the author holds for it and the complexity of the work. I mean, uh, Lucius Shepard was writing Dragon Raoul up until his death. Yeah. You know, and so he was writing up for, for, for 30 plus years, I guess. Because I think the first Graoul stuff appeared in the early 80s. And by his, by his own account, he kept thinking he was going to wrap it up, and then every time he wrapped it up, it opened up another window for him. Yeah. Or you get the Rogers Elasny Amber experience where... You know, it starts off fresh and vital, and then it comes down to, well, those are the books I can sell, so I need to make a living. Exactly, and it's easy to do. Yep. Um, Let me ask. Yeah. We, we could cite any number of examples. Phil, Philip Jose Farmer's Riverworld series, a terrific series until it went two or three volumes longer than it needed to. How, how often have you been advised or advised someone, only read yeah. the first one? You know, it's like, honestly, um, Riverworld is nice, but read to your scattered bodies go, and the rest of it's kind of like, eh, see how you feel. I think the first three are like that. I think after that, you're getting uh, you're getting into deep into a kind of fanish mythology. And, and by like, fanish mythology, yeah. I, don't, I don't mean to disparage fans, but I think there's a point at which the inventiveness of the series gives way to the popularity of the formula for the series. Sure. June. At which point you just want more of the same. But, you know, this doesn't just happen in science fiction. People who read Agatha yes. Christie mysteries will read the same mystery over and over again. I remember Robert Parker, who wrote the Spencer mysteries, uh, was, was literally pulling them out of his back pocket for the last several years of his life because he wanted to write other things. But the readership didn't want to, it didn't want a complicated or well-plotted mystery. They wanted the banter. They wanted the stuff yeah. they'd seen before. Uh, and I think it's it is easy for writers to give in to that, for financial or other reasons. I think Zelazny is an example of somebody who did, mm -hmm. um, and it, it it raises an interesting question because I don't think, for example, that Gene Wolfe was extending that series because he had clamoring fans fans waiting at the train station for the next bundle to be That's thrown true. off the train. Let me ask is you a quick yeah sorry yeah go ahead I'm sorry so let me ask you a question that's not completely 
at an angle to this, but it's a slight angle, and it relates back to, to last week's podcast, episode 198 with John Clute, and even forward to episode 200. And that is, what do you feel about the idea that science fiction should have a purpose? Not what the purpose is, but what do you think about the idea that it should have or does? Hmm. There, okay, there are two reactions to that, which is my way of completely waffling on an answer. Yeah. One is that, no, I don't think it should have a purpose at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, it's, a, it's an art form. I go back yep. to Oscar Wilde. All art is quite useless. Art, science fiction does not exist to do something outside of what science fiction already does, which is to create entertaining, enlightening, insightful works of fiction. The reason I think the other side of it, the other side of it is a book I just received in the mail this week, although I probably should have gotten it earlier. I just got it, and it's the Hieroglyph Anthology uh, that is really the brainchild of Neil Stevenson, which is clearly based on the notion that science fiction needs to do good and useful things. And Mm -hmm. I will tell you without having opened the book, oh, I've I've opened it, but I've not read it. that this book is not going to make much difference at all in terms oh, no, no, of no. science's ability to do this sort of thing. Not at all, no. Not at all. Uh, and I've read a chunk of it. There's some very good stories in there, but it still won't make any difference because it's the wrong tool for the job. Good way of putting it, yes. If your intention is to change science fiction if in 2014, if your intention is to make some kind of enormous impact... I don't believe the anthology is the tool for that job any longer. And I say that as an anthologist who loves trying to do that with anthologies. Mm-hmm. I think a series of anthologies, he says, self-interestedly, can perhaps play, you know, begin to play a bit of a part. But you need a longer period of time in the marketplace in front of readers. You need a longer period of time to influence writers before you can begin to ha- you know, have the kind of influence that... Uh, hieroglyph hopes to have. I'm not sure that well, I... Okay, yeah. Well, no, let me ask you a question, because in a sense, you could, I could make the argument that some of your anthologies have been hieroglyph-like in that they've been limited in the technological protections, the solar system, for example. Sure, 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 sure. And, and, and that is, seems to me, the, the, idea of, the idea behind the hieroglyph project dates back, for those people who aren't familiar with it, to an essay that Neil Gaiman... Uh, wrote in a world policy journal several years ago called Innovation Starvation. Mm -hmm. And he basically argued that science fiction in earlier generations inspired young engineers and scientists to go out and create technological innovations. Um, And we haven't been doing that for the last 50 years. He blames science fiction for something that I suspect has an enormously complex uh, set of reasons behind it. But the idea still is that if science fiction focuses on achievable technology, it will somehow inspire people. Um, and any science fiction confined to the solar system, I suppose, could do that. Could. But I don't know that it does. I don't know that that's the purpose of it. I, I don't know that, that any view of science fiction as being something other than fiction, something more than fiction, something like social engineering, I don't... It seems to me the best writers I know think of themselves as storytellers, as writers, as artists. And, and look, secondly, I'm convinced by that to a degree. I really am. Uh, however, it doesn't take into account the purpose of a particular strand of science fiction. Uh, 
And I mean, I would overwhelmingly say I don't believe all science fiction should do something. And right. I would also say that I don't think that any work of science fiction that doesn't engage in the so-called great discussion or the, uh, is flawed or lesser or whatever else. The whole great discussion where one work of science fiction talks to another and looks to the future, that's a particular stream of thought within science fiction. It's not the sole mission of science fiction, not the sole purpose of science fiction. Mm. Uh, and I wouldn't point it and say, that's it. However... I look at recent articles by Norman Spinrad and Asimov's talking about the importance of talking about the future in science fiction and how he feels for something to be science fiction, it must be about the future. I look even today at a, an article by Ian Sales, who I don't always agree with, where he talks about a, a science fiction's failure to come to terms with the present, I guess, is how I would look at it. And I look back at the conversation with John Clute and talking mm -hmm. about the need for science fiction to engage with the world, which I think is the real nub of it. I think John puts it very well. Really and which I think perhaps came across slightly off key in a few places. I think some people felt that, well, in fact, I know that Ian Mond, friend of this podcast said on Twitter mm -hmm. that he felt it sounded a bit elitist to talk about, uh, popular hero superhero movies as examples of not engaging with the world which of course doesn't encounter john clute's conversation that we've had with him about mm. say captain america the winter soldier as an example of exactly that kind of film, film engaging with the world but i i think set aside the innovation angle that uh neil stevenson is interested in which i think mm. is interesting but is at best a, a sideline i don't think it's ever been the purpose of science fiction to inspire people to become scientists I don't think that's what it's about. Gernsback may have felt that, but well, uh, and jolly good for him. I don't feel that. Yeah, but um, you know, to, this is what Sales says in his blog yesterday. So what went wrong? When did we become so resigned to the present, so resigned to our powerlessness that we began to ignore not only the change but the possibility of change in our science fictions? And what can we do about it? Now, I don't agree with everything in that paragraph, but it says uh, to me that. At some level, what he's saying is exactly what Clute was saying, exactly what Macomont has said, exactly what a whole bunch of other people have said, and that. No, no, we're back. Yep. So, so oh, yes, yep. Basically, what they're saying is science fiction needs to engage with the world, and if it doesn't, then it fails. And again, I don't think that's universally true, but I think for a a core element of it, and when and core or. A particular strand of it. I'm not trying to preference this above other science fictions, but for a chunk of science fiction, surely that's what it should be about. It should be about engaging with the world. Well, it should engage the, with the world. It, it should talk to the you know by it should look it should use science fiction to some degree. Should I would posit use uh -huh. stories set in the future as ways of discussing the problems we're encountering in the in, in the present. That's what it should be about. It should be about engaging with the present. I think it does this. I, 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 I think that what makes me nervous is the notion that any literature should do anything. There is an argument to be made that a science fiction story can be set in a, in a remote future, in an alternate history, in an alternate reality, a cosmology or something, yeah. and can be an effective story. Sure. In other words, it doesn't necessarily need to engage with the world in the way that social realist fiction used to engage with the world. It's possible to write a science fiction story, which is a beautiful work of art. By doing that, if it deals realistically with human emotions and ambitions and feelings and so forth, 
it will engage with the world, but engaging with the world does not necessarily mean engaging with a specific set of social and technological problems that are of our moment. Sure, but I think you're conflating a science fiction with science fiction. A single work of science fiction shouldn't have to do anything. And do anything it wants. Exactly. However, science fiction as a genre, as a whole, has things that it can, might, could, should, would do. And I think this is this thing we're talking about is one of the key things that it should do, but mm-hmm. I don't think that it's a litmus test for failure on a work of science fiction. I just think it's a statement of the health of science fiction that it does that. I, I no, I agree with that, and I think that one of the things that is interesting uh, when you talk about engaging with the world really reflects back on what we were talking about earlier in terms of Worldcon, the diversity of science fiction, yeah. engaging with the world at one point in science fiction history, meant engaging essentially with the Western project of scientific discovery and technological innovation. Now I think science fiction can legitimately engage with uh, with African attitudes toward this and the work of Nnedi Okorafor and Thai attitudes toward this. And, oh, yeah. Uh, in other words, the world is not one world anymore. And I think what's interesting and what I think is very healthy about the developments in science fiction is that when somebody says science fiction should engage in the world, you have a legitimate right to ask which world. Well, I think that's true, and I agree with that, and I applaud and welcome the increasing diversity of the field that we're seeing. I'm not sure it actually changes my basic point, though, because to me, right, whether Mm. you've got the point of view of a white male in Milwaukee or... Mm an Asian woman in Thailand or a bisexual person in Argentina or a whomever, wherever in the world. And I'm sure I'm missing out, Uh but take the next point. They're different to me, potentially views on the same question, you know, on this same purpose of science fiction. There may be different answers and that is interesting and really, really valuable, but they're answers to a similar kind of question. And I want to see that question, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about seeing that question continue in science fiction, engaging with the world. What is going wrong in our, what is going right and wrong in our world? How are we going to deal with it? What stories, when we set them in the, in the future, mm-hmm. let us look at our world afresh? You know, a great recent work of science fiction like 2312 does it very clearly and plainly. That work mm-hmm. engages with the world. Some books do it more subtly. I mean, Cryoburn by Lars and Master Bourgeois, which is about reproductive technology, actually does engage with our world in, in, in a less obvious way, but nonetheless, is still very much part of the vital discussion of science fiction. Some works don't seem to do that, and that doesn't make them flawed. But it does, you know, it it doesn't talk to how healthy our genre is. And to know how healthy our genre is, I think we have to see these questions answered, or we're at sea. Well, when you talk about science fiction as doing something, I think you're absolutely right. You can't. You can't expect every individual work of science fiction no. to engage with the whole project of science fiction. No. Uh, but you are talking about science fiction as though it were a project, as though as a as a genre it has some social, economic, political, intellectual function beyond that of of art, beyond that of writing the best possible story you can write. And is that the only thing that distinguishes science fiction from other fiction? Is that What's, I don't know. I don't know. And I'd also reiterate again, you know, the project is part of what science fiction does. 
Mm-hmm. It's within the sub. It is a subset of science fiction. It is not science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not intended to be an exclusionary statement. But the health of the project, I think, is important. That's what Locus was about. That's what a lot of other things were about. That's what our discussions, to some degree, are about. I think. Because what's interests me is that the, the the criticism that science fiction doesn't engage with the real world, which I've heard off and on for decades, is no different from the same criticism made of mainstream fiction. Um, in other words, not everybody is is having coffee and thinking about getting divorced all the time in a suburb of Connecticut. Uh, <laughs> Um, so, so, no, so no, this, I, this, I intend to do that right the, the moment the podcast's over. I'm going to grab a cup of coffee, sit down, and ponder divorce. Yeah, exactly. That's what happens. That's that's completely. No, I'm not, um, Marianne. When you listen to this in four months' time, <laughs> I'm, I'm not. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying is that yeah. sci- that science fiction um, does or does not engage with current social reality to the exact extent that any other fiction does or does not. The author chooses to write this or not. Yeah. You can write completely... I, I, I agree that science fiction as an idea, and our friend Charles Brown was one of that generation that literally believed science fiction could change the world. He literally believed science fiction was a branch of philosophy and not a branch of fiction. Um, and I think that's still a vital part of science fiction. I don't uh, disagree with that at all. I don't think you can limit science fiction to that view anymore. And I don't want to. I mean, I, I was very taken by jo- John's view in the podcast that, for example, science fiction is no longer well. A science fiction is no longer a work of fiction that is based around a science fictional idea. It's uh, a, a story that has a science fictional element in it. Mm-hmm. What we consider to be science fiction is broadening, and I think will continue to become broader and more diverse uh, over time. However, I think that also means that the health of the of the project. That this subset of science fiction is mm-hmm. ever more important as well. You know, we need a a broad, diverse, ever changing, growing, and evolving science fiction. We also need to, to to have a healthy current in it that maintains this this discussion because this it's a worthwhile, interesting, and valuable discussion that it, that's being had about the problems that we're facing and how we can resolve them. And I realize I'm not being simplistic and suggesting that science fiction is a problem-solving literature and that we're coming up with nifty technical doodads mm. to save the world. I'm suggesting that thoughtful authors are looking at the problems that we surround ourselves with today and are telling stories that look at different angles of those problems and are setting them in the future. And they're using the future as a laboratory to be able to talk about those problems. I think that's, that's worthwhile and valuable. I think it's true, and I think science fiction can talk about those issues in a much more direct way. Um, and it, I mean, it, it's very difficult to talk about this in the abstract. If you look at specific works, um, you look at, uh, I don't know, you look at environmental collapse um, in a Paolo Bacigalupi novel compared to a Hunger Games novel. Um, and they're, they're both excellent in their own way, but Bacigalupi wants us to know what's on the ground right now, which is causing yeah. this. It's not some anonymous catastrophe which creates a dystopia in the future. It's an event which is about to happen. Better example, uh, there was a um, mainstream novel last year, a year before last, by Barbara Kingsolver, who's a biologist who knows her way around this sort of thing. I think it was called Flight Behavior, which dealt with uh, monarch butterflies, a very minor science fiction element in it. Um, And it's the science fiction element derives from insect behavior. I have on my table now, if I can look at it very quickly, uh, the new novel by J. 
Johannes Senesalo called The Blood of Angels, yep. which appears to be a science fiction novel based on the collapse of bee colonies around the world. Yep. It's a very realistic um, situation. The novel appears to take it off in a very science fictional fantasy direction. Um, so to some extent, what Senesalo does with this existing ecological crisis is to generate a science fiction novel, which is, it looks from all looks, I've not even gotten very far into it, is very disturbing, very imaginative, and a good novel in the sense of its uses of the fantastic. The King Sovereign novel uh, was a very good novel in terms of its portrayal of a community in Appalachia and family relationships and so forth and so on. With the the monarch butterfly migration as a, as a subtext. Yep. Science fiction takes subtexts in mainstream fiction and makes them the text, makes them the central yeah, yeah. focus of the, of, of the narrative. So that Senesalo's novel is clearly science fictional, whereas King Sauber's novel, even though it has some science fictional elements, is not. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that may be part of what John was getting at in our podcast, is that science fiction can directly confront these issues without having to subsume them to a, a more traditional narrative. I think that's true. And I think part of what Ian Sales is getting at in his blog post, which is, you know, it's interesting, um, is, is that we're not doing that enough, that we're, that we're not actually engaging big issues that are, are, are around us today and finding ways to talk about them using those tools that we have. And I think there's a point to that. I mean, I do see works which look like they're doing it. I mean, The Race, the Nina Allen book, which I've not read yet, so I can't comment about it, looks as though it's one of those sorts of books that really engages with the world mm. and with the, the, the central mission of science fiction. Uh, there's a group of authors that we see who seem to do that regularly, and that's a wonderful thing, and we're seeing more of it. I, I can see it, I think, a little bit in Cam Hurley's Mirror Kingdom. I am actually optimistic it'll be in Company Town, the Madeleine Ashby novel that's coming up in a, a month or two. And there's a few others. Uh, well, obviously, a, a Port Peter Watts's Echopraxia has at its core that kind of thing. I mean, there's a man mm. who always has his eyes open and looking at the world Norn-like, you know. So That's true, in his, but but in in his case, uncompromisingly speculative and scientific in a way that uh, that is not going to attract novice readers, frankly. Well, no, it's not, but it, it's still one of the books of the year. And yet, we're right. done, Gary. It certainly is. Are we? Are we almost well, out of we're time? Well, we're pretty much out of time. I was going to say, do you know what else we've done? We've done a classic us thing. I think we've got mm. our podcast the wrong way around. We've got the interesting discussion at the at the end. So for those of you who hung around, this is a, obviously the ongoing discussion we have here at Good Street, and one we'll touch on again. There are echoes of it in next week's podcast 200 mm -hmm. with all of our special, special guests. We hope you'll be around to listen to it, and we'll spread the word. We were very excited to record it. Had a ball, I think. And, you know, it was all good. I should probably say there's one thing we didn't say at the 200, in the, on the 200th podcast. I didn't actually intro introduce my my co-introducer at the at the podcast. I wanted to mention that because among the people we were thanking, in addition to Joe Walton and Robert Silverberg and Kim Stanley Robinson, is Sophie, who was the introducer together with you of um, of, of two hundred. And hopefully, we'll be there when we do four hundred. Uh, oh, that's really intimidating. <laughs> It's only, it's only four years away. She yes. won't want to do it then. She'll be too cool. She'll be 17 or something. I'll be like, no, Dad, I'm not going to come to your stupid podcast. Because, <laughs> I mean, yeah, 
it would be where were we 2014 15 16 17 18, 2018 so the, the year after Helsinki wherever that will be we'll have to do it again or will we do it for 300 do you think maybe every 100 episodes we should do a live one well, either that or every every time. Well, no, it, it depends on you and I being together at the same world con at the same time. Also, yeah. But with that, I think we're done for the week, Gary. I think we are. I think it's been fun to get back to just having a conversation with you after having all these people who are so much smarter than we are intimidate us. We can just be dumb together and again. It's true. And next week there'll be interesting people, and we have some interesting guests in prospect. I won't spoil uh-huh. who they might be, but interesting guests who've said they'd be willing to come and talk to us, and I'm quite excited about that. Both young up-and-coming writers with new thoughts and uh, a couple of older uh, writers who are willing to come and talk to us about the past, which is interesting yeah. as well because I think it's important to capture that archival element of the field. So till next week, or in our case, the week after next, because, hey, we love yeah. the time off. It was wonderful talking to you. Excellent. Good to see you in London, and uh, we will chat again next. This is now, as it always will be, the Cood Street Podcast.